Okay, good morning. We're going to be in Acts 7, 51. And the reason this is kind of a short little pericope is because just the way it's laid out in Acts. This is about hard-hearted Israel. The next section, starting with 54, narrates the martyrdom of Stephen. But what he says here is what enrages them so badly they stone him to death. So that's what we have for today. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather with fellow Christians to open up the scripture. And we pray that you would help us have tender hearts that would allow your word to penetrate so that we can learn and not be hard-hearted like the ones we read about here. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Acts 7, 51 to 53. And then I'll read that. And then I'm going to have a little thing about the throne of grace that I added to the beginning of this to help us understand how God answers prayer. Okay. We're going to have an interesting case of prayer when we get to the last PowerPoint in Acts 7 because Stephen prays, and I'm going to claim that his prayer is answered very quickly. Stephen will say two prayers. Father, forgive them, and two, into thy hands I commit my spirit. That, those kind of prayers. He immediately went into the hands of the Lord. And we're going to see, I'm giving you a little foretaste, a teaser. He said, forgive them. One of the ones there who didn't know what he was doing was Saul of Tarsus. And later he would say about himself, I did it ignorantly in unbelief. God forgave me. God answered Stephen's prayer in the case of Saul. Now, that I just saw this last week myself, but I was thinking about prayer. So, we want to talk about, before we talk about hard-hearted Israel, let's talk about our high priest, which is the one to whom Stephen would pray directly. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And that's who he prayed to, the high priest. And we're going to learn something here in Hebrews about our merciful high priest. Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So we learn several things about Jesus, who's at the right hand of the Father, who his ascension was narrated earlier in Acts. He ascended through the clouds into heaven. We learn that he can, we have a double negative in 
the Greek, so the New American Standard translates it literally. The double negative comes to the conclusion we do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He was one who was tempted, as we are, yet without sin. Now, I don't want to engage in theological conjecture about the impeccability of Christ. If you read a commentary, there's paragraphs about it. And it's a brain twister. I'll just tell you what it's about, but we're going to just go with what it says here. Some people say Jesus could not have been tempted because he was sinless. And if you're sinless and you're God incarnate, you cannot sin. And if you cannot sin, how can you be tempted to sin? And so when I was in Bible college, we just jawed about that. What about this? What about that? Finally, my teacher said, he could not sin because he would not sin. Let's go on. (laughs) The point here isn't whether it was conceivable that Jesus would sin, which he wouldn't. He's God incarnate. But his relationship to us. That's what we're learning. And the author of Hebrews is urging us to go to the throne of grace. And I'm working this into Acts because prayer is thematic in Acts. The church gathered to pray a number of times. Stephen will pray even while he's dying. Okay, we have a high priest who's not separated. See, the high priest in Israel, who was the most important person, and they had the Sanhedrin, who were the ones Stephen's debating with. The high priest in Israel was separated by all this stuff. They had the balustrade that Eric was talking about, the veil, he could only go in once a year. He was this decked out. He was this grand religious person, but really had nothing to do with the common Israelite. Okay? Somebody, you would, if you had a problem, you wouldn't go knocking on the high priest's door and say, hey, could you help me out? No, you, you wouldn't even presume to do such a thing. So the author of Hebrews wants us to know that the high priest we have is different than that. He was tempted. Not that the high priest really wasn't, but they didn't talk about that. He cares about us. He sympathizes with us. He listens to us. He's one that we can go to in our time of need. And he realizes that we're weak. Now, some verses, maybe, Eric, because you have a mic, I'll have you read some. Luke 15, 1 and 2, if you could look that up. Got it. <clears throat> Luke 15, 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners 
and eats with them. He receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, so it'd be easy to think if you're just a common Israelite, I have nowhere to go. I'm sinful. I'm not good enough. God doesn't want anything to do with me. Jesus received sinners and he ate with them. Eating was table fellowship. You only had table fellowship with people that you were close to. You only had table fellowship with the right kind of people. Jesus ate with sinners. Now it says in Luke 15 too, remember Luke Acts, two volume work by the same author. So what we read in Acts 7 assumes we know what happened in Luke 15. It says they grumbled, the Pharisees and scribes, the Jewish leaders grumbled. Now I looked that word grumbled up in the Greek and then in the Septuagint and it's the exact word used in Numbers 14 about the Israelites grumbling about God's provision in the wilderness. And it's the same word used in John 6 for the people grumbling about Jesus' bread. They grumbled. He said, my blood and my flesh. Oh, no, Moses gave us manna. They forgot that they grumbled about the manna. Now in their minds they're thinking, that was good. Moses gave us manna. No, they grumbled. Now Jesus gives his life. What do they do? Grumbled. Same word in the Greek. He eats with sinners. He has bread. He breaks bread with sinners. Grumble, grumble, grumble. We don't like God's provision. What is God doing giving us this guy who claims to be Messiah and he eats with sinners? Jesus suffered. Eric, you can go to this. Luke 23, 13 to 21. It's kind of long. But I want you to see that there's an intentional similarity in Luke Acts between Jesus and Stephen. Jesus went before the council, the Sanhedrin, and was rejected. Jesus said, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Okay. Stephen goes before the council and he is being martyred like his master. So there's an intentional uh, relationship here in Luke Acts between Jesus and Stephen. So, Eric, Luke 23, 13 to 21. All right. It says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. 
Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Yeah. So what did they want? They wanted Jesus dead. Now, a follower of Jesus, Stephen, they want him dead. They couldn't tolerate God's messengers. It says in 1 Timothy 6, 13, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Jesus was tempted. Jesus was rejected. Jesus was hated. Jesus made the good confession. Stephen, like his master, Jesus, makes the good confession before the Jewish council. Stephen will appeal to Christ. I already alluded to this. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said that, he went to be with Jesus. Throughout Luke Acts, the Jewish leadership rejected sinners, kept themselves aloof. In the Stephen narrative, this is me saying this, he will accuse them of being sinners. They had accused him of blasphemy. Acts 6, 11 to 13. Jesus receives repentant sinners. He eats with them and he sympathizes with our weaknesses. We can go to Jesus. This is an unbelievable privilege that sadly many take way too lightly and I have in myself at times and it's really bad I'll tell you what if you get enough problems in life you start appreciating the throne of grace because you'll go there it's real easy to think we don't need it oh I'm young I'm strong I can do anything wrong We need to go to Jesus. William Lane, in his great commentary on Hebrews, says his high priestly ministry of intercession is effective on their behalf. The special nuance of sumne thesi, which is sympathize, it says beyond the sharing of feelings, it always includes the element of active help. In this context, the stress falls on the capacity of the exalted high priest to help those who are helpless. My dear brothers and sisters, if you're feeling helpless, go to Jesus. He cares. So I actually had a question uh, regarding uh, that statement and then last week. So I was wondering, last week you stated that not only, you know, so we go to Jesus, but uh, you said that we go to his word apart from, it sounded like you said apart from him, but I just was hoping that you'd clarify. So Jesus and his apostles gave us the word. 
You're right. The Holy yeah. Spirit inspired the Word. Yeah. The Word of God coming to us is through the Bible, not personal revelations beyond Scripture. So my, my question was actually, so then do we get the Word taught into us or do we diligently study? Because I saw that the, uh, the scribes, they, the Pharisees, they diligently studied it and they looked to the Word as if it had life, but it only attested to the life. Well, no, that's neo-orthodoxy. I reject neo-orthodoxy. Neo-orthodox says the Bible's not revelation. It testifies to revelation. That would be Bart and Boltman in a neo-orthodox. The evangelical view is that the Bible is the Word of God. Okay? Uh, I do believe it is. But okay, that's right, yeah. My, so my question is, so... If the word of God is what Jesus spoke, and Jesus spoke to the Pharisees. Yeah, their problem was unbelief. Right, exactly. And so that's why, and even the disciples, it says, they didn't understand what the prophet said until after his resurrection. It said their eyes were opened <clears throat> to understand what the scriptures and the prophets said. So yes, it's impossible to say that by their diligent study, because they saw firsthand the miracles of Jesus and the fulfillment of prophecy, of the scriptures, which is the word of God, and yet they didn't understand it until God opened their eyes. Okay, that's, uh, let me explain what that means. Understand doesn't mean inability to conceptualize the content, okay? We see the discussion of that in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Mm. When we preach a crucified Jewish Messiah, okay, mm -hmm. cru the wisdom of God is Christ, Christ crucified. Now, the people who mocked and rejected that idea and didn't understand it, it doesn't mean the concepts were unknown to them. Let's just unpack that. And then the next slide, I think, will help. Crucified. What does that mean? Hung on a cross and executed. All right? Well, I think the Jewish leadership understood what it meant to be crucified. Okay? Jewish. What does that mean? Well, they understood what that meant. Descendant of Abraham. Messiah, what does that mean? The anointed one, the promised one, the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, they understood that. Crucified Jewish Messiah who died for sins. What does that mean? Well, they understand that too because they had animal sacrifices. There was a lamb. Remember John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Did they understand that? Well, they heard him say it. What about from their history? Well, you have Genesis 22. You have Abraham with Isaac. And even the Jewish commentators said that when Isaac was carrying the wood up the hill, the Jewish commentators said it would be like a crucified, soon-to-be-crucified man carrying the cross. And so here's Isaac. 
And my father, where's the sacrifice? Where's the sacrifice? God will provide. They got to understand the concept, but their hearts were hard. And, and the truth uh, didn't penetrate. It was just bouncing off. But see, it's not that when you receive the Holy Spirit, the concepts become totally different. You still have a crucified Jewish Messiah who died and was raised and who shed his blood for sins. Before they're going, what, what, what? Now you go, thank you, Jesus. Do you see that? So understand means appreciate the truth of. The concepts don't actually change. The hearts change. Right, yeah, yeah that's, what, that's a good question, Eric, because that's what we're going to study today. See, they're hard-hearted. I think the best example is Saul of Tarsus. That's why Luke is so brilliant. Isn't it great that the Holy Spirit inspired a saved physician, Luke, with brilliant capabilities in the Greek language to write for us Luke Acts? So he has this little thing where Stephen is being rejected, hated. He's dying, and we'll see in a couple of weeks, Saul's not only holding their cloak, the scripture in the Greek says he was giving hearty agreement. Yes, yes, yes. Kill this guy. Shut him up. We don't want to hear any more of it. Saul. And Luke narrates it. And in Luke nine or in Acts nine, the truth penetrates into his heart. Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, who you persecute. Who are you persecuting? And he goes and preaches Christ. I know all about it. That's what it means. The ideas don't actually change, but the heart changes. That's what we're trying to say. But that's a good point to bring up. Because uh, we need to know the truth is crucified Jewish Messiah. But what does Paul say? To the Jews an offense, to the Greeks foolishness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got Caesar. He crucifies people. Why would we want some criminal who was crucified? Especially a Jew. Well, you never know who God's going to save, do you? Now, what does answered prayer look like? I would affirm that God answers Stephen's prayer. Because as soon as the last stone took the life out of his body... He was in the presence of Jesus. I don't know in miles how far far heaven is from earth. But it means nothing to God. Boom! He's with Jesus. To be absent from the body, present with the Lord. Look at this. Here's what happens at the throne of grace. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, that translation isn't letting us into the full significance here, which I'll explain to you. Let me break this down. Here is one of the fantastic verses in the whole Bible about what answered prayer looks like. What is it that God gives us? 
What did he give Stephen? In Stephen's case, it wasn't that the stones started bouncing off because he had an invisible shield. He actually died. But God did forgive at least one of those guys, Saul. He didn't throw the stones, but he agreed with it. And Stephen went in the presence of Jesus, answered prayer. Therefore, let us, let me break this down point by point by point. One of the most important verses in the whole Bible. Let us draw near. Let us. Interesting use of the Greek language by the author of Hebrews. His Greek is at least as brilliant as Luke's, if not more so, according to the people that know these things. See, an imperative is a command. You stop at the red light. We tell that to our kids if they're going to learn to drive. Then when we get older, we don't do it. Oh, red light, yellow. (laughs) Maybe two cars through on the red. No, the command is an imperative. You stop. That's a command from God. Now, imperative in the Greek is going to be second person, you know, you. But the author of Hebrews didn't want to be so harsh. He wanted to include himself. How did, there's no first person imperative, even though we talk that way. Bob, stop doing that. <laughs> like when you hit the ball in the water when you're golfing. All right? Now, the way the author of Hebrews handles that is he uses this, what Dr. Lane calls hortatory subjunctive. You all knew what that meant, right? <laughs> hortatory means having the nature of being an exhortation. So it's a subjunctive that exhorts. Subjunctive mood in the Greek is something that might be true, could be true, ought to be true. Right, Eric? So let us means this ought to be true. Let us make sure this is true. There's your imperative. It's a wish. Yeah, it's a wish. In Hebrew, it's a Joseph Okay. So it's a wish. Another Eric. If I say Eric, everybody's hands go up here. Uh, this is uh, <laughs> Eric the Third here. Um, I, I, this is actually a question, but uh, on that, let us. Uh, does that? Could we say we must? In other words, we must draw. I would say, confidence? yeah, yeah. If you use must, in a sense of ought to. Okay. Yeah. In other words, yeah. it's not certain that we will. Right. We might say, who needs God? I'm young and strong. I'll go do it myself. Bad idea. Well, I'm thinking, okay, if we want to receive mercy and find grace. We go to the throne of grace. We must draw near with confidence. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, that's what we ought to do. So that's why we call it a hortatory subjunctive. Is it a subjunctive mood? And it's an exhortation. 
This is what we ought to do. I'm including me. Let's all go there. There aren't too many days we don't need to go there, are there? Okay, second word. Okay, first, let us. Second, draw near. Oh, yeah, this is a really fantastic word. Proserkamai. I love that word. When we did radio on Hebrews, I talked about this a little. And I was, was going to write an article about this, and I guess I never did. Draw near. Proserkamai is a word that's used in the Old Testament as a technical term for the high priest going in to the holy place on the Day of Atonement. It's used here for all of us saying, because of what Jesus has done, the high priest has made possible for the priesthood of every believer, meaning all of us can draw near, whereas in the Old Testament, only the high priest could. Let's look it up. Eric, over here, this Eric. Deuteronomy 21.5. Brian, while you're there with the mic, Leviticus 21.17. I want to show you two verses or Prasirkamai is used in the Old Testament that are salient to our study of Hebrews 4.16. Go. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for Yahweh your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of Yahweh. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. Yeah. Come forward. My, my translation says, come near, and the Septuagint is proserkamai. Let the priests draw near. Brian, Leviticus 21, 17. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your offspring throughout their generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the food of his God. The word approach in the Septuagint, proserkamai. You have a defect, you do not draw near. Get this. Let it sink in. In the new covenant, with Christ the high priest, sinners who have a defect can draw near. Not under the old. You don't have to be a Levite. You don't have to be a lineage of Aaron. You don't have to be free from defect. You can draw near. And not only can you, but you're exhorted to do so. Let's keep on here. We just started. Let us draw near with confidence. That is almost irony, but yet it's a part of the command. Parousia is the Greek word. Another way to translate it is boldness. Now, this idea of drawing near that you see in the Old Covenant, the sons of Aaron, they did so with great trepidation. If God didn't accept the offerings, or if they had some kind of defect, they might be struck dead. 
You didn't just go prancing in to the presence of God. It was a fearful thing. So the subjunctive let us draw near, proserkamai, with parousia. Confidence means amazing. You mean me, a defective sinner, a sinner with nothing going for me, can not only draw near like a high priest on the Day of Atonement, I can do so with boldness and confidence, knowing I will not be struck dead, but I'll be received by Jesus with open arms? Really? Can this be true? Yes. Yes. That's what it's saying. It's amazing, dear brothers and sisters. This is an amazing thing. So we go right to the throne room of God with confidence. So what do we get there? Well, first of all, we're going to the throne of grace. It's not the throne of judgment and retribution that happens to those who reject Christ. It's the throne of grace. So what do we receive? Number one, mercy. I'll have a slide about this. Mercy. Let me quote Lane. I'm going to quote him twice. Dr. Lane's commentary on Hebrews is so good, it eclipses all other commentaries on Hebrews. He says there's a bold extension of the language of worship. The writer calls the community to recognize that through his high priestly ministry, Christ has achieved for them what Israel never enjoyed, namely immediate access to God and the freedom to draw near to him continually. They may draw near to God through prayer with the confidence they will be graciously received. That's what it says. If you put this in the context of the Old Testament, it's unbelievable. Hallelujah. He further says this, the introduction to pray with parousia, bold frankness, takes advantage of development in the meaning of this word that first occurred in Hellenistic Judaism. Philo, that was a secular Jew, wrote a commentary on Genesis 15, and Abraham is described as coming before God with courage and well-timed frankness, parousia. This is precisely the attitude the hearers of Hebrews, says Lane, are encouraged to adopt in speaking with God. What does that mean to us, my friends? We don't have to develop a pious language that only works for religion. We don't have to have pious God talk. Oh, thou art. You know how all of a sudden you switch into the King James? I hope he doesn't get embarrassed if he found out I mentioned him. But one of our, one of the, my friends over the years who was an elder when I was a pastor, 
Skip Pepin, always ran a prayer meeting for years. And I don't know, the thing that was so wonderful about Skip in his prayers is that's the way he was. He just would say, God, we got a big mess here. We need you. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't know any pious prayer language. Skip talking to God was skip talking. And here's the good news. God receives that. He hears. I want Skip to pray for me. Grace and help. One more slide on this. What constitutes answer to prayer? See, I get emails from CIC readers who don't understand what I'm trying to say, I guess. And they think answered prayer means personal revelations from God. God, should I go to the University of Minnesota or the University of Wisconsin? And then you hear a voice from heaven, go to Wisconsin. (laughs) No, that can't be right. See, these are matters of personal liberty. You can choose to go where you decide to go and trust God to help you. So what do we receive? Number one, mercy. And I looked it up in the Greek in my concordance, found 10 times in Luke. The other gospels don't use it much. One of the things Luke loved to write about was God showing mercy to sinners. Luke 7, the woman that wept on Jesus' feet. The prodigal son. So many times in Luke, God shows mercy to sinners. Theologically, we can say mercy is God not executing his justice on us, but instead receiving us because he's a merciful God. God shows mercy to sinners. One song that I love is the one that uh, the music ministry has done off and on over the years. Wonderful, merciful Savior. Our first Faith at Risk conference. A couple of singers sang that song, and it was just unbelievable. It was the first time I heard it sung publicly. Wonderful, merciful Savior. We have a merciful Savior. And this theme was introduced in Luke Acts, Eric, Luke one seventy eight. if you could go to that. The very beginning. Remember the Sunday school lesson I gave about visitation? Visitation of God creates a crisis where you either come to him and find mercy or reject him and go under judgment. Look how that was introduced in Luke Acts in Luke one seventy eight. It says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. There's the visit. The, the visitation of Jesus Christ, or I should say, the visitation of God in the person of Christ was the tender mercy of our God. It was that an allusion in the Old Testament? Sunrise from on high? I got to admit, I can't remember where that verse is but it's there somewhere. And then 
there's the idea of the mercy seat. Eric preached on this. Romans 3.25, I'm quoting from the Net Bible. God publicly displayed him, says the Net Bible, Romans 3.25, at his death as the mercy seat accessible through faith. Let me say that again. Romans 3.25. Hilasterion is the Greek word. The mercy seat accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. So the mercy seat, Hilasterion, Christ is our mercy seat, and it has to do with God passing over sins. And that is an allusion to the first Passover in Exodus, where God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Where was the blood placed on the Day of Atonement? Mercy seat. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. If you come in faith and you come in obedience, a lamb was brought without defect. God, in his avenging status, will pass over. But Egypt will be judged. That's a visitation. Some are saved, some are judged. The Passover was a visitation of God. Eric, do you have any insights? You know, on this? I just found that uh, reference to the sun rising. Okay. It was uh, Malachi, Malachi 4 2. I'll just read it. It's, it's interesting. It says, For behold, the day is coming. He's talking about the day of the Lord, burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, so it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, here's the people of God who fear my name. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And so it's just really a... There's a visitation. There's a visitation. It brings judgment upon the enemies, but it's salvation for the people of same God. Same as Passover. Exactly. The same as Messiah coming. And it ties into the day of the Lord because in the day of the Lord, it's judgment on the enemies of God. But for us, it's a new day dawning. Yeah. The messianic age will dawn. Can you imagine yeah. when John the Baptist announces, Behold... The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here's the Lamb without blemish, whose blood would be shed once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. So mercy comes to us at the mercy seat, and Jesus is our mercy seat. Go to Jesus. That's what it's saying. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Grace, we know what that is. At the mercy seat, we find grace. At the throne of grace, we find grace. Brian. So you have three things up there that constitute answer to prayer. Mercy, grace, timely help. To a believer, mercy is ongoing. The grace is ongoing. Timely help, we've heard God either answers yes, no, maybe later, whatever. But my point is... The word, by the way, means 
Just in time. Just in time. But two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> Brian, just a little story about this that touched our family. Diana's put up on a prayer, the prayer chain, the Gospel of Grace prayer chain, that our daughter and son-in-law sold their house, and he is awaiting a job. We're praying for that. And they didn't have anywhere to live. Within a day, Jessica had posted it on some social media. The next day, somebody called her and said, we have a, or my mom has a townhouse here in Mankato that she bought but not moving into till October. You can move in there if you just pay the association fees and the utilities. That was one day. Timely help. Our needs vary. Our situations vary. The word timely help, very interesting. Again, the Greek helps us here. I hadn't really dug into this until just this last week as deeply as I have now, although I did when I taught Hebrews. Eukairos. Very interesting. The word kairos, the Greek has two common words for time. Kronos, where we get our word chronology, and then kairos. Kairos, it's been said that chronos is chronological time. Kairos is time in its, uh, how would you say it? It's value. It's crucial. Sometimes the word kairos can be translated crucial moment just in time this is the day of infamy infamy there was greek kairos something has to happen we've been attacked it's a crucial moment action needs to happen you where we get the prefix for a word eulogy eucharist you you kairos would mean you means good or beneficial, good. So this is good time, quality time, or timely, or well-timed. Probably the best way to say it, well-timed. So God comes at a well-timed moment. Nancy. Just a quick little story. I was with a friend whom you would not recognize, but we um, happened to be driving, chatting, beautiful weather, and she was speeding, and we didn't recognize it. And the cop stopped and got her and was not happy with how high she was going. And I realized when he spoke to her, she pleaded for mercy. And he went back to his cop car and wrote up the ticket and came back. And it was a warning. It was not a speeding ticket. And he granted her mercy. (laughs) I thought, how interesting. I'm going to try that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, some theologians said mercy is where we don't receive what we deserve. So I hope you have a better appreciation for Hebrews 4, 15, and 16. Now let's get to the Narrative here, Acts seven fifty one. 
I preface all that by saying we're going to see that Stephen goes to the throne of grace while he's being stoned. But here, first of all, he confronts the Sanhedrin, the ruling class in Israel, the ruling council. He says this, I'm quoting from the new KGV because I believed it was the best translation from the Greek. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Eric, being how you preached on this, what is the deal about this circumcised heart? Yeah, God obviously gave circumcision, physical circumcision, but the circumcision that people ultimately need is circumcision of the heart, and he promised that he would do that for his people. It's ultimately something that we can't do ourselves. It's something he does, and it's really synonymous with regeneration. He promises it in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, that he would one day remove the scales off our heart, enabling us to believe. And uh, then we see the promise reiterated in the, in the prophets, Jeremiah 31, that he was going to circumcise the hearts, enabling people to believe, therefore be filled by the Spirit, and the Spirit would enable them to finally obey as he had commanded. So that's Amen. God's doing, yeah. So the uncircumcised heart means... Unresponsive, yeah. Unregenerate. Yeah. Yep, amen. And, you know, Bob, this gets back to the discussion that we were having with Eric, that the issue is a moral issue, to have an uncircumcised heart. You may know the facts, but you don't care about the facts. You don't like the facts about the gospel. But when you have a circumcised heart, it enables you to want to believe. Yeah. It gives you the ability to believe. That's the I can give you an illustration of that. Yeah. When I was in Bible college in the early 70s, my favorite teacher was recommending the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. It was a huge set that I couldn't afford. I'd go look at it in the library or whatever. But later I was able to afford that set. Now I have it on the computer. Just boom, up it comes. I gave away my actual books to a young seminary student. But I was looking up faith. What is faith? Pistas. And the entry in the Theological Dictionary under Faith was by Rudolf Boltman. Now, have you heard that name? He was famous for demythologizing the Bible. Boltman said ancient peoples were superstitious. They believed in miracles. But we know that miracles never happen. So... When Jesus talked about these things, it was just accommodating their superstition, so to speak. So I get my theological dictionary. I'm looking up the word faith. Who wrote about it but Boltman? Ah, all this money, and I get Boltman. But here's what was shocking. His entry under faith was absolutely accurate. In other words, his scholarly ability in Greek was very good. He'd been hired and charged with the responsibility of telling what the biblical authors meant when they used the word faith. And he got it right. Because he was capable of doing his job. 
I assume he didn't believe a word of it. But see, there's that point again. Well, you can know what all this stuff means. But if you don't have genuine faith, it's just empty words. The uncircumcised heart. Every one of those Sanhedrin were circumcised men. But Stephen said, you have uncircumcised heart. Now he added to that. And ears. Stiff neck, by the way, is used in the Bible. We don't have time to look all these up. But I have them on the slide so you can look it up. And just one quick one. Deuteronomy 9.13. The Lord said to me, I've seen his people and they are stiff necked people. What does it mean? I won't listen. Don't tell me anything. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I don't want to hear about what Moses says. The uncircumcised heart, unregenerate. Don't listen to God. What about uncircumcised ears? What is that? Jeremiah 6, 10. Could you be looking that up? Resist is used in Numbers 27, 14. Here it is. I'll read Numbers 27, 14. What does it mean to resist? It says, for in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy before their eyes at the water. These are the waters of Mirabah, of Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. The word in that Septuagint is used in connection with holy. They didn't, they resisted God as holy. They resisted. I debated with a guy you know, a debate once back in the 90s. And he says, there's no such thing as irresistible grace. And he cited this verse to prove it. And he says, see, you can always resist the Holy Spirit. And I said, and my response was that we affirm that unbelievers resist the Holy Spirit. But that God can send grace to overcome that and regenerate us so that we no longer resist. Now remember Paul's conversion in Acts 9. Jesus said to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Literally. And the word there, kendron, means an ox goad. So the ox is supposed to carry the cart. Poke kick poke kick well Paul did that didn't he until his conversion and he didn't do it anymore so I said well this grace that we're talking about is saving grace effectual grace did you have a verse oh yeah uh, Jeremiah 6 uh, verse 10 this is about the impending judgment upon Jerusalem The Lord says, to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of Yahweh is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. So the uncircumcised ears means what? 
unresponsive. Yeah, you won't listen to God. Nope, nope, nope. Now, it's interesting, okay, in the Stephen narrative, he tells them they have uncircumcised ears. What do they do later? You ever seen a little kid who don't want to listen? They put their, they go, yeah, no, 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 I can't hear you, I can't hear you. That's what the Sanhedrin did to Stephen, proving he was right. They have uncircumcised ears. But Stephen, Acts 6 5, was full of the Holy Spirit. He was different because of a work of God. In conclusion, we got more to go on this, but that's all right. Lots of Sundays coming up. Dear saints, if we believe the gospel, when we're willing to come to the throne of grace, God will not reject us. God will receive us. We'll find mercy. We'll find grace. And we'll find help that was well-timed. I bet every Christian can give a story about having found well-timed help. Just in time. It's not like God gives us a bank account with a billion dollars in and we can just keep writing checks. We don't have to worry about it. It's a lot of times we don't have what we need right up to the moment. And then it comes. God gives well time to help us. Close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your kindness and your grace. Thank you for teaching us these things. And may our hearts and ears be circumcised so that we hear and we respond with tender hearts of faith. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And God bless all you mothers on your special day. Amen. Amen.